remember, oh, we remember. You came to rescue, we were lost and gone astray. You died our death, our sin was buried in the grave. You rose to life, and you rolled the stone away. We remember, we remember, we remember, oh, we remember. And we will not forget, you are always with us. We will not forget, you are always for us. We will not forget. We will not forget you, and we will not forget you are always with us. We will not forget you are always for us. We will not forget, we will not forget you, God. Well, good morning, Carpenter's Way. Once you guys get up on your feet, find somebody and tell them good morning. Oh 
Good morning, everybody. Hi, Mia. <laughs> How are you? This weather is too much, isn't it? Absolutely perfect this weekend. Uh, thanking the Lord for that. I What a weird week in our country. Would you not agree with that? I mean, what a strange, strange time. I was just uh, thinking um, this morning about Psalm 3418. It says, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted. He rescues those whose spirits are crushed. And uh, it just struck me that it's never been more important, at least in our lifetimes, that the church is being the church, that we just love folks and tell them about hope in Christ. Because both uh, both parties have had their people attacking people yesterday. If you didn't know, a Jewish synagogue was sh shot up by somebody from the left, and somebody from the right sent a bunch of fake bombs around or ineffective bombs. And my goodness, it doesn't matter what side of the aisle you're on, We've got our own crazy people, but I do know that, that, that Jesus is our Lord and we can trust in him. This culture, especially East Texas, needs your hope, folks, needs our hope. So find your hope in God, and uh, you are in the embassy this morning. This is, uh, this is a little piece of the kingdom of God, and we gather together each week to remind each other that it is well with our souls, that our daddy is still on the throne, that he is good even if bad things happen, and we can trust him. So it is my hope and prayer this morning that you're encouraged having been here, and uh, we're coming out. We're not, we're not talking politics this morning. We're talking uh, service to our king, and uh, we're glad that you have chosen to be here this morning. If you are watching on the Internet, and I hear from a lot of you, uh, we're glad you're joining us this morning, but I'll tell you there's nothing like being inside of, uh, of God's uh, family's house, and uh, we would encourage you to come join us sometime so we can hug your neck and shake your hand and get to know you. But we're glad you're here, and if you're visiting with us this morning, it is our hope and prayer that you're encouraged. Um, our, our prayer as we prepare our times together is uh, we want you to like us, of course, but our real prayer is that you fall in love with Jesus Christ. So uh, that's, that's what we're hoping for you. You need him, uh, and then we can build a relationship around that. But uh, in any case, uh, we're glad you're with us this morning. And as soon as the service is over, I'd love to shake your hand. I'll be up here after and, and uh, love to meet you and answer any questions that you may have. Uh, we're going to have a great time in God's Word this morning, so thanks for being here. I hope you brought a Bible. If you didn't, it'll be on the screen behind me. Uh, if you're watching at home, grab a Bible because we want you to see it for yourself. So uh, we do have some announcements that I want to make. Uh, if you're in this room, uh, would you open your worship guide? There's a few things that I'd like to point out to you. We want to welcome the Andersons and the Whites to our, uh, uh, to our family, uh, leadership, our, our uh, membership family, and uh, we will have another... Uh, class coming up here in a couple months. If you want, if you're, if you've been visiting with us at Carpenter's Way, and you'd like to know more about us or become a member, uh, we will make sure you know the date of that. And, and it's a one Sunday thing. You come in, and you'll meet all the elders and all the all the leaders in the church, and and we answer questions for you. And and, uh, and if this is where you feel like God's leading you, we'd love to have you participate with us in that. Having said that, I have a few things uh, also that I want to highlight this Wednesday night is uh, we are having from 5.30 to 6.30 instead of our Wednesday night program because it is uh, Satan's birthday. We are having a, I still think that's funny, um, but we are having uh, a hot dog, it's a hot dog dinner. Uh, it's free, 5.30 to 6.30. Uh, when you get off work, go pick your kids up, dress them up, bring them in here, and we're not giving out candy. We're just doing dinner to help you this week. Uh, we know a lot of you have grandkids that you're going to go drive around neighborhoods and, and beg for free food. And all that neat stuff. So it's not that I don't like the holiday. I just don't. Anyway, that's a different discussion for Wednesday night. But want to encourage you to come out Wednesday night. Uh, even if you're on the internet watching there, come on in 
and uh, we'll feed you um, pork, and uh, uh, then you can go on uh, with your evening. But this is a chance for us to get together and, and just just uh, be together and, and, and serve you. And so if you're a grandparent or a parent and you've got kids who are going to do that, come on. If you're not, you're welcome to join us as well. And uh, no matter what your uh, feelings are about the evening, we want to do this for you. And, and that's this Wednesday night, and again, it's free. So please take note of that. Uh, I also want to mention to you, uh, Carpenter's Way family, that uh, in two weeks, we are going to have our annual business meeting. And uh, that involves, in, in your worship guide, you have uh, the information you'll be voting on. Um, that is going to be, we have finance, uh, our, our church officers, our elder, Jeremy Overby, is nominated. Uh, Mission Investment Team, Rex Gray. Finance Team nominee is Glenda Ayers. Uh, this is how we do that. When we have our annual business meeting, it'll be on Sunday night, a couple weeks. When we do that, uh, we won't allow any questions about individuals. You have two weeks to ask questions. And the name of the elders, I believe, are on the back. So if you have any questions of the staff, you can come talk to us. If you have concerns about them being church officers, we want you to do that. That's why we're throwing it out. We're just not here to shame folks. Uh, if you have any questions about that, please refer back to the uh, Supreme Court hearings. That is not what the church is supposed to be about. Uh, if you have questions, concerns, if you don't feel these people are qualified, we're throwing them out to you to tell you, come talk to us. Uh, we are here to listen. These are people that will be serving you for the next few years. Uh, uh, the night of the meeting, uh, we will open it for questions on our budget, so we'll be glad to answer it. But again, you have two weeks to ask those questions. I'm trying to think. There is a table somewhere in the welcome area. Uh, we'd encourage one family to take a proposed budget for next year. Look through it, ask questions, and we'll do our best to answer those for you. Most of our annual business meetings take less than 15 minutes because we've done all the questions ahead of time. Um, our goal here is to be wise. Our goal here is to stay focused on ministry, uh, not to get in a debate over what kind of toilet paper we buy and it's too expensive. So keep focused on that stuff. This allows us to do that. We want you involved. Uh, so uh, take some time for that trying to think if there's anything else I need to mention. Robert Grimes, who is the pastor of missions in our church, has uh, a couple things for you. And uh, Robert? Sorry to all the guys. Okay, a couple things. Uh, first thing I want to mention is I'm sure that anybody's been around here for a while knows why I love Carpenter Gap and the worship center. And for those that are new that haven't been around, all those Carpenter those that haven't been here before, I'm going to give you a couple of numbers. In 2017, it was 11 million shoe boxes and gifts collected worldwide. Uh, and 8.8 .8 million of those came from the United States. And since uh, 1993, we had 22.7 million shoe boxes collected. Our goal for this year is 9.1 million shoe boxes to be collected in the U.S. Last year, I think we were somewhere around 11,000 the way the process works, we'll collect all week, and then we'll load those shoe boxes on two trailers that will be in the parking lot on the 19th. And to show you how important this program is, in 2017, there was a study that they ran, or a study that goes along with the program called the Greatest Game uh, that the kids go through next to the shoe boxes. And in 2017, 2.7 million kids graduated from that program. 
situation that and out of that last year one hundred and ninety eight kids went to state and federal college. And so that is astounding. So that's a it's a very important mission project for us is to sign up and see that way in your neighbor and say, Yeah, we'll look at that and volunteer. And some of those hours can be extremely busy and some of them can be extremely hectic. And we especially need guys at the end of this program in the 19th and those parts that are in the playroom. And especially that's the kids' time. So if you keep that in mind, uh, pray about it, pack your shoebox, volunteer to help you. Okay, second thing, uh, this is very exciting for me. Uh, you get to meet someone this morning. We have, we have a little flyer on out here on the mission, on the mission table. Uh, we don't get, our missionaries get a chance to come in very often. This morning we had two missionaries and their families that were worked with MAF, which is Mission Aviation Fellowship. If you're not familiar with that, Kent and Amy Embleton and their boys, uh, they're here this morning from Mozambique. So it's a great pleasure and very exciting to have them this morning. They actually have a table set up out front, and so when you start, they'll be there through after Bible study also, but please go by and speak to them, talk to them, let them tell, tell you about the mission field that they're in, about the uh, MAF, and also just to encourage them. Thank you. Well, it's a privilege to be worshiping with you this morning, and um, it's true that we've never been here before, so it's really fun for us to see some faces and some people who we've communicated with. Um, my name is Kent. Mission Aviation Fellowship in Mozambique, in Southern Africa, in South Africa. Uh, you may wonder, how on earth do we make a connection with Geneva? And that's through Paterno University. Has anybody heard of Paterno? It's a great school. So um, Amy's from the West Coast, I'm from the East Coast. We went to Paterno and I studied aviation. Amy was a math teacher. And uh, after graduating from college, she wanted to go serve. And just like R.G. Letourneau, he was a very technical man who did not receive a calling to be a preacher or a missionary. Uh, we can use our technical skills to glorify God uh, here and in different places. So that's, that's our calling. Um, I work as a missionary pilot and a mechanic, and uh, my, my day is pretty similar to a lot of you. I go to work and I, I do technical things. I work with my hands. Um, there's some not so people not wearing their clothes and things like that, um, but uh, there are also many things that we're more accustomed to, and just doing technical work and doing it to the best of my ability serves to honor God, so um, it's great that you all have been supporting us, thank you very much for that, and we'll be out in the lobby after the service, but we'd love to get to chat with you a little bit more about what we do. Basically, in the studio, the four summers, um, we connect really remote places that don't have good roads or any roads our hub city, which is Nampula City. We live in a big city with a lot of people and hardly any buildings or infrastructure. It's a very uh, poor area. It's between north of Mozambique and far from where all the, the aid comes flowing in. So um, we, we use the airplanes to connect business people, missionaries, doctors, uh, and different uh, hands to take flights up into remote places. Thank you very much.
go by and see him next to the church. For those of you who are new to Carpenter's Way, we are a very mission-minded church. Um, and uh, listen, I understand that there are many people who uh, are don't, don't feel like, uh, well, you don't have the resources. Maybe you can't even afford to put a, a, a Christmas box together. Well, I'm, I'm excited to tell you that for every, every dollar you give in your, in your tithe, in our normal giving, uh, between about 16% of that goes to mission work. So you are actively involved in financially supporting missions, if only by way of your regular giving. On top of that, we, uh, some of this is supporting missionaries, and um, we, another way is Operation Christmas Child. Uh, some of you can't go to a short-term mission trip. Some of you can't do other things. This is super important. It doesn't feel as important. It seems kind of like a little gimmicky and American-ish. But what Robert just told you is so significant. People are hearing the gospel. And, in, and most of you are aware, if you've been here for any time, I got to go to Panama to a distribution. It's phenomenal to watch these kids and families come as they get these gifts. And then to see them invited back to 12 weeks of discipleship is amazing. And to watch pastors learn how to disciple through this program. It is well worth it. And, and so I want to encourage you to, to pack a box. Uh, if you can't afford to pack a box, or if you do, we need you to volunteer. Because these boxes come in, we put them in big cartons, those cartons go on trucks. Uh, so we've got two weeks till that starts. This is the way that we participate with Samaritan's Purse. It is a great organization. We have, I have been with them, we have looked at them top to bottom. Financially, every penny we give is well spent. So if you can't uh, afford to do a box, this is a great opportunity for you to come. And even if you don't feel like you're healthy enough to pick up a box, we have to register people when they come in. So no matter what level of ability, physical ability you have, we need you to help. Especially men, that last Monday is a big deal. Because uh, we load trucks, it's tiring. Uh, we, are, we, we bring a forklift in to help us, but we, we need, um, I shouldn't just say men, uh, men or very strong women as well. So, uh, but, but boy, we need you to sign up, we need you to participate and uh, allow the Lord to use us. But I want to remind you that as you give, uh, a significant amount of that giving goes towards mission work. And that, that's, that's international mission work. On top of it, what we do here is mission work. And we're going to talk about that this morning. You are in East Texas not to take up space and to breathe and, and exhale oxygen. You are here to serve. You, the minute you got saved, God didn't take you home on purpose. It wasn't an accident. He's not timing out your life card. Uh, you are here for a purpose. We are in mission work. And I want to encourage you that with that this morning. And uh, these are other ways to participate. 150 years from now, the only thing that will matter is what we did with the truth that we were given. And uh, we are honored that you would be with us today. We look forward to you coming back in two weeks and preaching. <laughs> he told me right before he doesn't want to preach. But, uh, but to answer questions and to interact, because this is a cool ministry. If you are a teenager, if you're a college student and, and you feel called, and, but you don't want to preach or lead worship, boy, I tell you what, this is a phenomenal ministry. Um, many of you are familiar with them indirectly because of Jim Elliott. Uh, you know the story of him uh, dying down in South America. He was an MAF pilot uh, working out of Quito, Ecuador. And uh, so uh, we are very familiar with them because we went to Moody Bible Institute. Most of the pilots are trained through our missionary aviation programming there. But uh, look, uh, it's a great use of your life if God calls you.
So uh, all, that's all with that. Uh, lots of stuff coming up. You're going to need to review your worship guide today and uh, at upcoming things. We want you to be involved. So um, I'm going to ask our ushers to come forward at this time to take our offering. If you are visiting with us today, if this is not your home church, please just pass the plate as it comes by. We're just glad to have you here this morning. Again, you've got uh, uh, officer questions. You please address them to me or to any of the other elders, and we would be glad to, to do that for you. Uh, we're going to pray for our country this morning. We're going to pray for our, our Jewish brethren in New York or uh, out in, uh, is it New, was it New York? Pittsburgh, that's right, it was Pittsburgh, uh, that are hurting. And uh, I, I just want to remind you, brothers and sisters, that we were grafted into the Jewish family through Jesus Christ. That's what happened. And although Jews aren't saved by nature of their uh, genetics, um, Jesus was a Jew. God has a special place for the Jew. They are still his chosen people, a holy nation. And God will revive them when the time has come. And so we want to continue to pray for these people as they hurt and that God will use us to draw people to the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for your mercy. Uh, we pray, Father, for our country right now. The rhetoric is, uh, is over the top. Uh, we have forgotten ourselves, especially in the church, that our task is not to win elections or even to proclaim a moral message. Our task is to proclaim mercy to immoral people. And it is my prayer, Father, that we would begin more and more as the world gets weirder and weirder, that we would become more and more aware that our task here isn't to be comfortable, but is actually to proclaim the risen Lord and eternal life to anyone who wants it. Lord Jesus, we pray for this, uh, this, this synagogue in Pittsburgh, all of those connected. We pray for the Jews around the world that are being persecuted uh, in intense ways, Father. It, it's... Uh, we pray, Lord Jesus, that as these people become more afraid and more aware of their circumstances because they are your chosen people, that they would turn to their Messiah, that they would look back historically and see that you were the fulfillment of Isaiah, that you fulfilled every promise, every forward-looking pr uh, prophetic truth that, that the Messiah would come to seek and save the lost and that they are among those who have been chosen to be saved and drawn to yourself. So save your people, Father. Redeem your people. I pray for our country, Father. It seems like as a church, uh, the body of Christ is neck deep in the fight. Uh, and I pray, Lord, that this morning as we spend our time in your word, you would remind us that we are to be people of peace and hope, even if we don't like what's going on around us. Uh, help us to be focused on you. Lord, I pray for our, our, our missionaries this morning across the globe, and even some that are visiting with us this morning, that you would bless them. And that even though they do not know our names, that to know that they are loved and they are prayed for and they are cared for. Protect them, Father. Uh, and uh, now, Lord Jesus, we turn our eyes away from the things of the world. We meet in your embassy this morning to focus on you. And I pray that our, our hearts and our minds would be completely attuned to your uh, what you have to say to us today. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray.
stand and worship with us. You're more than welcome. Whose power cannot be shaken? Whose breath gives us life? Whose death has set the captive free? His name will stand forever, lifted high for all to sing. Jesus, our God, our Lord, our King. Brighter than a million stars, His love is shining, calling every broken heart. Since you have been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven 
where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven and not the things of earth. For you died to this life, and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, is revealed to the whole world, you will share in all his glory.
everlasting amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me a sinner condemned unclean I stand amazed I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me a sinner condemned unclean singing how
seated. You know, um, your Savior loves them too. He loves them. Let's pray. Father, give us a heart for the lost more than we have a heart for ourselves. Well, we find ourselves at the end of 2 Samuel, uh, I should say the end of King David's life, actually. Uh, Next week, we're going to take some time to talk about dying well, looking at David's life, so we'll be all over the place pretty much in Chronicles as well as the end of 2 Samuel. David's going to write a psalm, his last psalm that's not found actually in the book of Psalms, uh, but he's going to wrap up his life in that psalm, and it'll, it'll be a wonderful time together. The, the human author of Samuel, though, <clears throat> wraps up his historical book, and I want to remind you that it actually wasn't two books, it was one book, and uh, he is wrapping it up in the final few chapters with four stories of David's conquests that are not necessarily in chronological order. In fact, most of us believe it's not in chronological order because he goes back to fighting the Philistines. But the author, the human author, felt that w- we should see these things about David's life. Within the final three chapters as well, you're also going to see two psalms, and I've already mentioned them, that David writes. It's his, it, it, we, we could redefine them as his death psalm, uh, reflecting on his life, and, uh, and we will look at that next week. Um, we won't be going through all the final chapters uh, um, because we've pretty much gone through everything, but I, I do want us in this week and next to do something I don't do very often and, and try to glean out a couple truths from David's life um, because he was called in all of men in history and all the women in history, God says, this is what it looks like to live a human and seek after me. Uh, in biblical or religious terms, we say he's a man after God's heart. That's what that means, that that's what it looks like to seek me, which is kind of remarkable when you think about his life because over the last few months, we've looked at some of the decisions that David had made. He committed adultery, killed her husband, uh, allowed his son to rape his sister without without leading that through that or taking care of it. Uh, we've talked about the high costs of forgiven sin. Uh, we've, we've looked at all of this, and it's kind of remarkable in light of his whole life, not just David the giant killer, but his whole life to realize <clears throat> that God said, that's what it looks like to want to be with me, to love me, to want to be my kind of guy. Uh, it's, it's remarkable. So in the, this week and next, we're going to try to glean some things out of it. And boy, this week's, this, this message this morning, it is so timely. It's so timely for where we are, so stick with me. Um, this is a really weird uh, story, as some of them are in the Old Testament. In fact, I would argue Barbara Haley and I were talking. These are, this is one of those stories, 2 Samuel chapter 21, the first 14 verses. This is one of those stories that most of the time you read through and you go, I have no idea what that's about, so I'm just going to keep reading. So there was a famine during David's reign that lasted for three years. So David asked the Lord about it. And the Lord said, the famine has, bec- uh, has come because Saul and his family are guilty of murder- murdering the Gibeonites. Verse 2 of 2 Samuel 21. So the king summoned the Gibeonites. They were not part of Israel, but were all that was left of the nation of the Amorites. The people of Israel were sw- had sworn not to kill them. That's found in Joshua 9. Uh, the people of Israel had sworn not to kill them. But Saul, in his zeal for Israel and Judah, had tried to wipe them out. I just want to make a comment about that. Saul was more zealous for the nation than he was for God. So take that in stride. Take a deep breath because this is going to play into what we talk about today. 
Saul was more zealous for the nation than he was for God. And because of that, he broke a promise that had been made for 450 years before by Joshua in Joshua chapter 9. David, uh, so the king summoned, verse 2, so the king summoned the Gibeonites, and I already mentioned uh, that this verse, so let's go to verse 3. David asked them, what can I do for you? How can I make amends so that you will bless the Lord's people again? Well, money can't settle this matter between us and, and the family of Saul. The Gibeonites replied, neither can we demand the life of anyone in Israel. So just so you know, what they're talking about here is not a humble, we wouldn't ask for that, but actually the Gibeonites or the Amorites, now known as the Gibeonites, these were the final remaining people of that nation, and they were living within the boundaries of the Jewish, uh, the Hebrew land. So they're all there, so there were limitations on what they could ask for. They, they, can't, they can't ask for wealth. Uh, they can't ask to own the land. Um, so they were limited. One other thing that you need to understand, and I'll keep reminding you of this as we go through the story because uh, you need to remember this. Saul's, remember the nation, the Hebrew nation is made up of 12 tribes. Um, within those tribes, God raises some to leadership. For instance, Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. Uh, you remember that David was from the tribe of Judah. Jesus, the Messiah, would be from the tribe of Judah. So the Benjaminites, within that land that they owned, were the Amorites or the Gibeonites. These people lived at their, uh, at their pleasure. So there was limited what they could ask for as uh, payback for what had happened to them. Uh, so let's jump on. What can I do then, David asked. Just tell me and I'll do it for you. They replied, it was Saul who planned to destroy us to keep us from having any place at all in the territory of Israel. So let seven of Saul's sons be handed over to us and we'll execute them before the Lord at Gibeon on the mountain of the Lord. All right, the king said, I'll do it. The king spared Jonathan's son Mephibosheth who was Saul's grandson, because of the oath David and Jonathan had sworn before the Lord. But he gave them Saul's two sons, uh, Ermani and Mephibosheth, not to be confused with the guy who makes soup. Uh, that was funny, okay? I do not know what happened to your sense of humor. When I came to Carpenter's Way, you laughed more. Something is wrong with you all. All right, so, uh, so he gave them Saul's two sons, Armani and Mephibosheth, whose mother was Rizpah, daughter of Ai, he also gave them the five sons of Saul's daughter, Merib, the wife of Edriel, son of uh, Berzeli from Meholah. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm not going to make any more jokes because they're funny to me. The men of Gibeon executed them on the mountain before the Lord. So all, of seven, uh, all seven of them died together at the beginning of the barley feast. Then Rizpah, daughter of Ai, the mother of two of the men, spread burlap on the rock and stayed there the entire harvest season. She prevented the scavenger birds from tearing at their bodies during the day and stopped wild animals from eating them at night. When David learned what Rizpah, Saul's concubine, had done, he went to the people of Jabesh-Gilead and he retrieved the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan. When the Philistines had killed Saul and Jonathan at Mount Gilboa, the people of Jabesh-Gilead stole their bodies from the public square of Bethshan where the Philistines had hung them. Verse 13, so David obtained the bones of Saul and Jonathan as well as the bones of the men the Gibeonites had executed. The king ordered that they bury the bones in the tomb of Kish, Saul's father, at the town of Zelah in the, in the land of Benjamin. After that, God ended the famine in the land. I'd like to remind you that while every story in the scripture, every verse, every chapter, every part of this book is written for you, not every verse or story is written to you. In other words, 
Uh, it is important that you understand that no matter what your Sunday school teacher taught you or, the, or the, uh, your youth pastor, not every chapter has an application for your life. But every page, every word, every verse is instructive to us. There are things that we can glean from these things, whether it's information on God or it's information on, God, on people, on their rebellion. And as we've looked at these books, we've certainly learned a lot about God's people, haven't we? Even the one that God says is, is the man who it looks like seeks him. That this is what a man after my own heart. We learn a lot about God's mercy, and boy, we learn a lot about man's sinfulness and rebellion. This story I just read you is another one that you could put under the category of weird. I mean, you have a famine going on sometime during David's reign over the Hebrew nation, and some historical theologians believe that this is actually 30 years into David's reign. 30 years, picture that. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, God allows a famine to take place for three years. If you know anything about Hebraic history, you know that uh, when God made a, a, a deal, uh, when God interacted with them, he told them to be aware of certain things. And if those things happened, then you would know that God was displeased with you and it was responsibility of the king or the priest or a prophet to go to God and say, what's going on? And that's what you see David doing here. This famine takes place and David returns to the Lord and through the prophet maybe or on his own. And he says, because remember, he wore the priestly garments. David is a unique character in history that does that. But he seeks the Lord and says, what is going on? And he finds out about this, this, uh, this promise that God was upset that Saul had broken a promise because of his love for the nation more than his love for God that had been made to the Ammonites all the way back in Joshua chapter 9. And having broken that, God was now uh, wanting David to write that. So, so to let him know, he puts a, fa a famine there. As I've already mentioned, the Gibeonites or the Ammonites, so the same group of people, it's all that's left of them, because Saul has killed all the rest of them, are living among the Benjaminites, which are Saul's people. Kind of got it? Super important. Sin always leaves a mess in its wake. One of the things, and you can ask Jeff this, and you can ask Alicia this, you can ask Robert this, you can ask Chad this, but one of the things that we as pastors come to recognize is, boy, I tell you what, your kids do not get away with your sin. God's condemnation is not on them for your sin, but the truth is, if you have adultery in your DNA and you don't deal with that with your kids, they will have adultery in their DNA. It just happens. And, uh, and boy, you see that here. You don't, sin leaves a mess. And, and I encourage you to go back in the last few weeks and watch on the internet if you haven't, or study those chapters, because what you see in David's family, uh, uh, Nathan the prophet said, your family's going to live and die by the sword. Because of David's sin with Bathsheba and the murdering, and it's, it continues, Saul had sinned against them, and God said, you need to right this wrong. So David goes to them, acknowledging the wrong that had been done against them, and he asks how he can make peace with them by righting this wrong. And they tell him to hand over seven of Saul's heirs to be killed. Now, you might be thinking that seems weird, especially because of the English wording of the phrase. It sounds like, wow, it's a human sacrifice. That's not what's happening here. You will recall that the law, and, and it was even before the Mosaic Covenant, it was a common law back then, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a life for a life. This was asking for justice. You killed us, we deserve seven times that. And that's why David turns them over. He turns over seven of Saul's heirs, and they kill him. And after that season, they, they're left out there hanging. That's to cause fear so that people won't do this again. 
But as they leave them hanging, one of the, two of the boys who are killed's mother actually sits for a whole season and watches them and protects them from animals at night and birds by day until their bones are left. That's all that's left. And David goes at that point, and he actually recovers their bones, and he picks up Saul and Jonathan's bones, and he buries them in a tomb, and that's a sign of honor. Now, I want to say something here that's, that's just an observation that I made. We all know David is a man of war. We know him to be a very effective fighter. You remember the song, Saul too was an effective fire, fighter, but the women would sing a song in the Hebrew nation where David or Saul killed his thousands, David killed his tens of thousands. They would honor him. David was an effective warrior. But if you spend any time actually looking at a story, this is why I like context of scripture. From reading the story, one of the things that you find out is as, as effective as a warrior he was, he seemed to always look for peace. He wanted to make peace with people, and that's what you see here. First of all, the nation was not at peace with God, and that's why there was a famine. So he goes in, uh, to God, and he may, what's going on? Why is this happening? And God says, because you've sinned. So then David goes to make peace with the Gibeonites. That's what's expected. God doesn't tell him how to write it, but he knows that he has to make peace with them. And once they bless the nation again, God will then bless the nation as well. So he goes to them, and he writes that wrong. But it doesn't just end there. David also realizes that the Benjaminites, who never really liked David at all in the first place, because he took the throne instead of one of Saul's heirs. Are you following me, or have I confused you? Remember when David takes the throne uh, over Judah? That the other 11 tribes are still following one of Saul's sons, who was not a good leader, but they follow him, and eventually David defeats them, and they take, he takes over all 12 tribes. You need to understand that even while David led all of the nation, all of the Hebrew nation, the tribe of Benjamin was constantly on the edge of turning their back on him. And last week in our text, you saw that. They're very quick, quick to abandon him. So the tribe of Benjamin was not a place of peace. In fact, I want to remind you also that in last week's text, that you remember, or you should remember, that Joab was David's head of military. Uh, for, for most of his reign, Joab led the military of Israel. Well, you remember that after the coup is put down of Absalom that tries to overthrow him, David actually takes Absalom's head of his military, Amasa, and he puts him over Joab. So in other words, he reduces Joab, puts, puts his enemy's general over all the armies of Israel, and that's the one that Joab killed last week in our text. And why did he do that? For peace. Understand that David had the right and could have easily caused the Benjaminites in the northern kingdom simply by sheer force to submit to him. But he never does that. He negotiates with them. He wants to make peace. Even in choosing Jerusalem, David had already had a capital city that they could have submitted to, but it was in the, within the boundaries of the tribe of Judah. But to make peace with the other 11 tribes, he moves it over to a town of Jerusalem that was owned by a foreign uh, country that he has to overtake. All of that is to say that if you slow your brain down and you read this thing, you begin to realize that as much as, as effective as David was as a killer, he actually seemed to always strive to make peace with those that he would rule. And that makes sense because that was his task. I'd also like to point out in this story, which is all about David trying to make peace, peace with God, peace with the Gibeonites or the Amorites, peace with the Benjaminites, that David didn't have to do any of this. He had to do something to make peace with God, no doubt. But David could have, by sheer force, caused the Benjaminites, caused the, uh, the Gibeonites to submit, but he didn't do that. In fact, that probably would have been easier, to put a gun to their head and say, submit, but he doesn't. 
He wants to build a relationship with these people, a relationship of trust, because that was his task. David's task was not to reign over the world. His task was to bring unity over the Hebrew people and those that lived within the boundaries of the nation so that they could focus on God. You see, the reason that God made the nation of Israel or the Hebrew nation was not because the world needed another nation, but because God was going to reveal himself to the nations of the world through this country. God was going to bring a Messiah to the world through this country. And the, the idea of a Messiah is to make peace with mankind between God and man. We forget that sin made us the enemies of God. I know that's not popular in today's culture and not even in the church. But let me be clear, according to Psalms, according to Ephesians, according to Colossians, we are the enemies of God until we are his adopted children. We are made enemy with God because of our flesh. We choose our flesh over God until we finally don't. And when we don't, we bow the knee to him. We are, peace is made to God through Jesus. Why is that a big deal? I know you all know that, but the reason it's a big deal is because most of the time when we tell people about Jesus, it goes back to purely, you don't want to go to hell, do you? Well, no, I don't want to go to hell. Well, here's how you stay out of car, uh, hell. In the last hundred years, most of our evangelism conversations, uh, most of the conversation about leading people to Christ has actually been about not going to hell. Here's a better of two bad options. Yes, you're going to sit in a very sterile sanctuary like the TBN studios for a billion years, but it's better than being on fire. Okay, how do I stay out of the fire? You accept Jesus Christ. The problem with that is that has nothing to do with why Jesus came. That is a benefit. That is a side benefit of why Jesus came. Jesus came so that we might have peace with God, and when we die, go to home to be with him. Does that make sense? Our eternal life is really that. It's a life. It's not sitting. It's not hymn singing. It's not boredom. It's actually fellowship face-to-face -face with the king of the universe who loves you so much that he sent his son to die for you, not to keep you out of hell, but to make you his kid. It's about relationship. And David, as the king of this nation, needed to make peace with these people so that the nation could get on with their task. David's task as the human king, who God didn't want to be a king, by the way. He was chosen by God, but remember, God wanted to be their king. They rejected God, so God put a human king in there. The job of the king was to stand between the nation and the king of kings and actually do what he says and lead them. So by effect, God is still the king and the people are still submitting to him. Does that make sense? You kind of get the context of all this? Because it's really important. Why is this a big deal? This is a big deal because what Romans 12, 18 tells us. New Testament. Job of the church. Our task. Why is that important? I'll get to that. But our job is to be at peace with all, with everyone. I was going to say it's all men. That's my King James memorization of it. But we are to do all that we can to live at peace with everybody in your political persuasion. It's not what it says. Only those that believe in democracy. It's not what it says. Only those that do moral stuff. It's not what it says. It says everyone. Because if we're not at peace with people, we can't do what we were really tasked with here. We may, like David, go, excuse me, God, that had nothing to do with me. David could have said, Lord, I, I get that Saul broke his promise. I knew that. He was a jerk. He, followed, he chased me around for 20 years. I mean, Saul was a mess. But he doesn't do that. He fixes it. 
because he understands that his task was not to make sure that everybody knew that Paul was a, or Saul was a jerk. His task was to make peace. And this is our task. We are to do all that we can to live at peace with everyone. We have a task. We have a specific task that we have been left here on this planet to accomplish. And me, we may want to win battles with people by sheer argument or judgment. We may want to submit, make them submit to us by apologetics. But even if we win those battles, and we may feel victorious, but we have not accomplished our task because our task is to actually bring reconciliation between God and people. If we, have, if we win a debate or a dialogue or a political persuasion, or even if we get people to act in a moral way that makes us feel good, if we get them to do that but they don't meet God, we have failed. That is our task. Our task is to bring reconciliation with God to people, fallen bad people, immoral people, people who make you feel and I feel uncomfortable, not judgment. That's God's job. Having said that, I'd like to show you another story you're familiar with in the New Testament. In John chapter 4, it tells us that Jesus knew the Pharisees had heard that he was baptizing and making more disciples than John. Though Jesus himself didn't baptize them, his disciples did. So he left Judea and he returned to Galilee. He had to go through Samaria on the way, and eventually he came to, a Samarit, to the Samaritan village of Sychar, near the field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Joseph, tired, or Jesus, tired from a long walk, sat, sat wearily beside the well about noontime. Soon, a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, please give me a drink. He was alone. At that time, he was alone because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. The woman was surprised, for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. She said to Jesus, you're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan. Why are you asking me for a drink? So let me, let me tell you what's really going on. I know you're familiar with this. I know that there are five ways to evangelize the lost in this story, but that is not what this story is really about. There's a bigger thing going on, and you find out what it is later when he has a conversation with the disciples. That's where I want to get to this morning with you. Just to bring you up to speed, though, I want you to understand that the, un the underpinnings of all of this conversation that this woman at the well has with Jesus is prejudice. Absolute racial and historical prejudice. You see, the Samaritans were hated by the Jews. And when I say hated, I have a capital H-A-T-E-D. And they were hated because they were a reminder that their parents and their grandparents had actually intermarried in direct disobedience with God with the Assyrians. You see, these people that we know as the Samaritans, that we have no problem with because we're not Jews, they were half-breeds. They were people that the Jews, that reminded the Jews of their parents and grandparents' wickedness against God. They had disobeyed his instructions about marrying with Assyrians, and the Samaritans were their children, their grandchildren, and their grandchildren's grandchildren. The Jews hated them. And to be honest, the Samaritan hated the Jews too. This was what Jesus does here, asking this woman to give him a drink, is it's crazy. It is absolutely socially unacceptable. But Jesus doing it did it because even though it was not okay for a Jew to do this, let alone a Jewish man, let alone a rabbi, to talk with a woman, he does it because that was his task. Follow me. She's shocked. She asks him a question. You're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. Why are you asking me for a drink? Jesus replied, 
If you only knew the gift God has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me and I'd give you living water. Jesus doesn't apologize for the prejudice. And Julie and I had a conversation about this this morning, so you get to judge whether or not I'm accurate or not. But Jesus doesn't apologize for the Jewish prejudice. He doesn't engage it. He doesn't explain it away. He simply takes her to the point. He says, I'm different. I'm not just a Jew. If you actually knew me or the gift that God was sending you through me, you'd ask me for water. He changes the subject. But sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket, she says. And this deep is, is what this well is very deep. Where would you get this living water? And besides, if you don't think this is about prejudice, look at this next line. Do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob? It's there. What makes you think you're better? Who gave us this well? I mean, this is Jacob. How can you offer better water than he and his sons and his animals enjoy? She once again tries to move it to a racial divide, a historical divide with Jesus. You think you can provide better water than our patriarch Jacob? You think you're better than him? Boy, does that sound like a racist question. What makes you think you're better? But Jesus isn't here to argue history or politics or racism or social injustice or religious differences. He's here to offer her something better. Jesus replied, anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water that I give, they'll never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Please, sir, the woman said, give me this water. Then I'll never be thirsty again, and I won't have to come here to get water for my stupid animals. That's a little bit of Mark in there. Sarcasm? Probably. I think her response is sarcasm. Maybe not, but I think it is. I think she's going, you're, you know, you're so cocky, you won't talk to me about this stuff? Then give me that water. Where is it? But Jesus doesn't allow her to take him off point. He could have. He's a Jew. He's a, he's a rabbi. And let me just say, this is where Julie and I may disagree a little bit, and she has the right to be wrong. But I'm just teasing. I'm just kidding. But here's the thing. I want to remind you that the one that we look to as the Savior of the world, Jesus the Messiah. By the way, Christ is, no, is not his last name. <laughs> it means Messiah. But Jesus the Messiah, he wasn't just 100% God. He was 100% man. If you doubt that, then you don't understand the 40 days in the wilderness of temptation. You've ignored the part of Hebrews that says he is tempted in every way, but he didn't sin. The truth is we have a sympathetic high priest who gets it. And I'd like to say, because of those two things, I'd like to add that I believe that it is possible that Jesus had negative feelings towards the Samaritan. Having negative feelings towards somebody based upon truth or a lie doesn't make you sin. It's when you act upon that. I want to remind you that growing up in a white culture or growing up in a black culture and distrusting people of color or, or of a different color doesn't make you evil. It's when you let it determine your life and your choices. That's when it becomes sin. It takes courage to look beyond your feelings and serve people. And I'd like to say that what Jesus does here is I think it is reasonable to think that there was some temptation in him to actually go for it with a historical discussion that she's wrong on about a lot of her theology. Now, the Jews were wrong for hating these people. They don't offer the mercy that God had commanded them to offer. But I think as a Jewish man, as a rabbi, I think Jesus probably felt a little bit awkward and knew this wouldn't end well, which is by the or wouldn't go well, which is, by the way, the reason that I think he sent the disciples away while he talked to her. Because he knew they wouldn't get it, and they don't. You see, all I really want you to get here is there is a prejudiced racial component going on here, and I... 
I know some of you are going, oh, he's going to talk about racism. I'm not. I'm going to talk about prejudice. And prejudice has nothing, has less to do with skin than you think. Prejudice is, is an angle. It's a point. It's growing up in the South and having a pastor who grew up in the North and saying, that's a Yankee. Gotcha. What are you going to teach us? He's a Yankee. What does he know? He's never seen a gun. I feel a little bit bad for Kaywood Lovett. That man has been trying, he's so afraid that my skin isn't tan enough because I'm not out fishing enough. There's actually life Kaywood beyond fishing and hunting. I went hunting with my son. We never killed anything, but we saw a lot and laughed a lot. It was great. But the truth is that if you're in the north and you hear somebody with a southern accent, you go, aren't they cute? Listen to that. If you're in the South and you meet a Yankee who makes you frustrated and you're a Christian, you say, bless his heart. It's the same thing. Uh, that's, that's prejudice. It's, 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 if, if you don't let it determine you, it's not right or wrong. It's just your upbringing. You're growing up. Your experience. It's, it's, it's what you are. It's what, it's what your DNA is. But what happens is, is God transforms us. It is a natural feeling, but we can't let it dictate. So don't go to the application yet this morning. I'll take you there. But I want you to understand that it is at least reasonable to think that Jesus had some of these feelings, but he doesn't let her drag or Satan drag him into that discussion because she's here for a task. She responds with, sir, give me this water. I'll, uh, then I'll never be thirsty again, and I won't have to come here to get water. I don't know if that's sarcasm or not. I think it is. But Jesus is about to validate that he's different. In one foul swoop, and I want to warn you that every Sunday school lesson you heard about being, her being a whore, her being a prostitute, we don't know what she was. We just know that Jesus points out her sin, and it's a sin that he would only know if he were a prophet. That's the point. Do not let the little shiny thing take your attention away of what's going on here. What's going on here is Jesus is talking to a woman that would never expect him to talk to her. He asks her for water. He should never have asked her for that. And then it opens a conversation that allows him to minister to her. She, uh, he said, go and get your husband. <laughs> well, I don't have a husband, the woman replied. Jesus said, you're right. You don't have a husband. For you have had five of them, and you aren't even married to the man you're living with now. You certainly spoke the truth. Sir, the woman said, now he's got her attention. You must be a prophet. For a moment, she's interested, but now she's mad. So tell me, why is it that you Jews, prejudice, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship while we Samaritans claim it is here at Mount Gerizim where our ancestors worship? In case you're wondering if she gets what's going on, she knows exactly what Jesus is doing because she takes it back to a religious discussion. You're going to get in my face about my sin? You're going to talk to me about that, you Jewish rabbi? Well, let me ask you this. Well, you're here talking to me about this living water, offering me some spiritual experience. Well, we're over here by Mount Gerizim, and you're in the synagogue. Why don't you talk to me about that? Jesus replies to her, Believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father in, on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship, while we Jews know a lot of, all about him. For salvation comes through the Jews. But the time is coming, actually, indeed, it's here now, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. For God is spirit, so those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said, 
I know the Messiah is coming. The one who's called Christ. When he comes, I'll let him explain everything to me. Pause. Take a breath. Don't read ahead. I know you know where the story goes. But this is a, this is a response. Look, you've gotten my face. I get it. You're different. But I'm going to wait for the Messiah. We know he's coming. And he's going to explain it to me. He's going to explain it to us. So we'll just wait for him. Thank you very much. Verse 26. Then Jesus told her. you've been looking for and that this is an incredible conversation it's not a simple King James Bible Sunday school lesson conversation where Jesus walks in and says poor woman at the well there is a tension here there's a tension and it's racial tension and it's prejudicial tension and Jesus doesn't even say that he's wrong or the Jews are wrong he actually says you don't really know what you're talking about we do know what we're talking about but here's the point the point is that my father isn't worried anymore a time is coming actually it's not it's it's now and you understand that because he's about to die on the cross he's about to make it not about going to the synagogue or the temple he's about to make it about in your heart being the temple being transformed and he looks at her and she's done there's no other conversation so she's going to cut it down sir i gave you a drink of water and you know i appreciate all you're saying and you are different talking to me about this stuff but i think i'll just wait for the messiah thank you very much because i am anticipating his coming Jesus looks at her and he says, I am him. Wow. Religious, political, racial divide only touches this life. Do you understand the picture? Just like that cup of water would leave him thirsty again within an hour and a half, the truth is that, that, that her spiritual water, her spiritual upbringing, the Jewish spiritual upbringing leaves you thirsty again because it doesn't solve your problem. Even the Jewish Old Testament teaching talks about atoning for our sin, which means in Hebrew, covering. Our sin must be removed. That's why Jesus came. That's why John the baptizer saw him and said, there's the Lamb of God that's going to remove our sin. That had never been talked about before. It had never been thought about. Nobody thought your sin could be removed. Frankly, they didn't even want their sin removed. They just wanted to go to synagogue and get it dealt with. That's all they cared about. Offer sacrifices and then get back to being Jews. That's what Saul was obsessed with. But David was obsessed with God. And Jesus was obsessed with his task. Jesus had not come to offer her racial or social or religious peace. That would only affect it uh, temporary response. He came to offer her eternal peace with God. Watch this. Just then, the disciples came back. And they were shocked to find him talking to a woman. But none of them had the nerve to ask. This is the only time the disciples in the life of Jesus kept their mouth shut when they should. But they don't keep it quiet for very long. What do you want with her, they were wondering. Why are you talking to her? The woman had left her water jar by, beside the well and ran back to the village telling everyone, come, see, meet a man who told me everything I ever did. Could he possibly be the Messiah? So the people came streaming from, streaming from the village to see him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging Jesus, Rabbi, eat something. Now, this is the message. But Jesus replied, I have the kind of food you know nothing about. Did someone bring him food while we were gone, the disciples asked each other? And Jesus explained, my nourishment comes from doing the will of God who sent me and from finishing his work. You know the saying, four months between planting and harvest. But I say, wake up, boys, wake up and look around you. The fields are ripe unto harvest already. The harvesters are paid good wages and the fruit they harvest is people brought to eternal life. 
what joy awaits both the planter and the harvester alike. You know the saying, one plants and another harvest. And it's true. I sent you to a harvest where, where you didn't plant. Others have already done the work, and now you will get to gather the harvest. What Jesus is saying is the time, the time for just finding food, preaching a message, moving on to the next town, planting seeds is over. It's time to reap the harvest. The time for debating or holding historical and racial grudges, politics, social improprieties is over. It's harvest time. It's harvest time. And Jesus was putting aside his Jewish heritage and even the cultural fights of his day that he certainly could have won with this woman. And he puts them aside to offer her eternal life. And he was willing to do it even if it meant being misunderstood by the other disciples. Even if it meant allowing her to misunderstand Judaism and their history. Even if the Jews were right and he could win the debate, he willingly set all of that aside. Because if he won that debate, it would only offer a temporary solution like a drink of water from Jacob's well. But he came to offer water from the living well. He came to offer her eternal life. Why? Because it was harvest time. John 4, 39 says this, Many Samaritans from the village believed in Jesus because of what the woman had said. He told me everything I ever did. When they came out to see him, they begged him to stay in their village. So he stayed for two days. He's not your ordinary rabbi. He's not even your ordinary Jew. He stayed for two days, long enough for many more to hear his message and believe. Then they said to the woman, Now we believe, not just because of what you told us, but because we have heard him ourselves. Now we know that he is indeed the Savior of the world. 2 Samuel does not address David's personal feelings about the Ammonites or the Gibeonites or even the Benjamites. What we know is David wanted peace with God and to fulfill his task as making peace within the Hebrew nation more than he wanted his feelings to be felt. In like manner, John 4 doesn't address all of Jesus' personal Hebraic feelings. Or even the facts. He actually says, you don't really know what you're talking about. However, the time has come when it's as much about the spiritual truth as it is about truth. And he offers her eternal life. Jesus didn't get into a fight that he could have certainly won. Why? Because he wanted to offer her eternal life. Almost done. 2 Corinthians 5, 11 to 21. Because we understand our fearful responsibility to the Lord, we work hard to persuade others. God knows we are sincere, and I hope you know this too. Are we commending ourselves to you again? No, we are giving you reason to be proud of us so you can answer those who brag about having a spectacular ministry rather than having a sincere heart. If it seems we're crazy, it's to bring glory to God. And if we're in our right minds, it's for your benefit. Either way, Christ's love controls us. Since we believe that Christ died for all, get this, we also believe that we have died to our old life. He died for everyone so that those who receive this new life will no longer live for themselves. Instead, they will live for Christ who died and was raised for them. So we have stopped evaluating others from a human point of view. Let that sink in. Paul and his team, we're not looking at people as Samaritans or Jews. We're not looking at them as Romans, or we're not looking at them as conservative Jews, religious Jews, Sadducees. We're not looking at them from a human point of view anymore. At one time, we thought of Christ merely from a human point of view, how differently we know him now. This means that anyone, including in, in the year 2018, Anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. That old life is gone. A new life has begun. 
All of this has been a gift from God who brought us back to himself through the Messiah. And God has now given us this task. You ready for it? This is our task. It's not political fixing. It's not saving the United States of America. It's not winning an election. It's not winning a debate with a fool. It is not overturning gay marriage. That's not what we're here for. Our task is of reconciling people to him. For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting their sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation now. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. For God made Christ, who had never sinned, to be an offering for our sins so that we could be made right with God through Christ. David could have won militarily this whole discussion, but he doesn't. Because his goal is peace. Peace with the Amorites. Peace with God. Peace with the Benjaminites. David's task was not to lift up Judaism or historical accuracy. Jesus' task was to offer this woman eternal life and anyone else in her half-breed community. He could have straightened her out historically, religiously, and even racially, but that's not why he was there. He came to offer forgiveness to anyone regardless of color, history, religious tradition. It was harvest time. And you and I, so too it is with us. We all have feelings. Most of you are probably conservative with those feelings. And when the bombs start getting sent around last week, you probably went, oh, great. I hope this person is a Democrat. Is what it is. And some of the rest of you, you were pleased when it turned out to be some crazy Trump freak. And the rest of us, you probably are trying to separate the fact that this person who shot up the synagogue is an anti-Semite and a liberal. And some on the right are probably feeling relieved that it wasn't another crazy conservative Trump guy. And you know what's sick about that? Jesus Christ is not a Republican or a Democrat. He's the Savior of them all. And we have gotten drug into this crap. I'm not saying we don't have feelings. I have feelings. I have ideology. But that is not why I'm here. And that's not why you're here. And as we go on through this next week about elections, we are going to be neck deep every time you see, and I can't pronounce his name, the Irish guy who's got a Mexican name, Beto, or the other guy who's so legalistic that he drives me crazy. The truth is they're both making me nuts, one more than the other, but it doesn't matter because I'm here to vote and then to offer reconciliation to everybody and anybody. Our hope is not found in this country, family. Our hope is secure in Jesus Christ. And that hope has already been purchased, paid for, voted on, and completed. It is a Supreme Court decision by the King of Kings. And they can't touch this. They can't touch this. They can't touch it. And Satan has drug us back into a debate that we can't win, nor should we even care to win. If you are black, you are black by God's choosing. That beautiful skin color you have, it doesn't matter what the South or the North thinks of you. It is what God thinks of you that counts. And if you are white, growing up in a Southern tradition where you distrust people of color, get over it. When you go into a store and somebody's got their pants to here, and you're looking at their underwear, 
Look at their soul. When you pull to a stoplight and the cart starts bouncing, bringer, 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 and you're wondering how much money they spent on the hydraulics of that bad boy, think about their soul. You can win a debate. You can win a debate. You can lose your soul. We are to be peace with all men and all women, even if they're socialists. Our task is to be messengers of reconciliation between great, crazy, red-hat, Trump-wearing people and super-liberal, Pelosi-loving people. We transcend politics for the kingdom's sake. And what is so alarming is that even the church right now is having a debate as to whether or not a person can vote for Trump and still be a Christian or whether or not, whatever the debate is. The word of God is true. Homosexuality will always be a sin. So will gluttony and slander and jealousy and adultery. It's always going to be a sin. People can say it's not. The whole church can decide it's not, but the church isn't the judge. What matters is that God sent his son to reconcile homosexuals just like he did straight people. And I am bothered by our cultural spinning downward. I'm bothered just like you are. I find myself wanting to turn the channel when I see certain things on TV or I see people holding hands in society. But God is making me keenly aware that if he were here, he would sit down with them and offer them water, even if they're married and gay. How do I know that? Wait until our next study. Next week is dying well, and then we're going to For the next couple weeks, we're going to do a history of of the Jewish nation all the way up until the 1940s. I'll give you an idea what happened. And then in January, we're going to start, and we're going to look at the incarnation of Christ. That means God becoming man. And we're going to do a study of all four Gospels. It'll take us 32 years. I will retire after this. But it's going to be, we're going to to look, we are going to look, and and Jeff is just horrified by this, but the title of the series is going to be Out of Stained Glass, the Jesus Edition, because I don't think most of us realize how radical he was. And we really don't. We kind of know it, and we giggle about it. But I don't think you realize how radical it was. You realize that Jesus was the, the wine steward at a party where everybody was already drunk. He stunk as a Baptist. But he didn't come here to be a Baptist. He came here to offer reconciliation. And then his next miracle was on the Sabbath healing a guy, knowing that it would disrupt the Jewish discussion. And he actually sent the guy into the synagogue to tell him what he had done. You know why? He came here to tell people, just like the woman at the well, that salvation is for him. I am the one you are looking for was the first message he ever preached. Isaiah, he stands up in the synagogue and he preaches Isaiah. And he, he, he talks about the Messiah coming is going to heal the blind and make, and make the, the deaf to hear. And the lame will walk. The dead will rise again. And he says, I am he. (laughs) I am he. I am he. I'm the one you're looking for. The world doesn't need straight marriages. The world doesn't need Republican governance. The world doesn't need socialism. The world needs Jesus. Do we still believe that? Then here's my encouragement for you. Vote and then get out of the box and go and tell anybody and everybody, legal or illegal, white or brown or black, about Jesus the Messiah. Be willing to lose a debate for the sake of the kingdom.
Love people who are hurting because they're hurting, not because they're stupid. Even if you think this next generation is a generation of snowflakes, melt their hearts with love. That was a play on words. Snowflakes melt. I did that. Don't do that at home. This is, <laughs> this is what we're here for. As your pastor, who knows everything, I give you permission not to lose any more sleep over this. We may lose our country. Just so you know, we never had our country. We may lose your moral compass, but we won't lose our moral compass. That's why we gather here. Remember the exhortation? Don't forsake the gathering together, even more so as the day of the Lord returns and draws near, because we need each other. We need to remind each other it's okay. And what's going on there, or even in your families, that doesn't determine truth. Truth has already been determined. It's been cemented in concrete, sealed in the blood of Christ. For all of eternity, our job is to tell people they're welcome to join us. Well, you're in that conservative Baptist, we're not Baptists, we are children of the living God who worship together. And the reason we associate with the Southern Baptist Convention is simply because they have the best mission program in the country for evangelicals. That's why we associate to them. As a people, we want to love the lost. So go get them, people. Go get them. Even the people that drive you nuts. Go tell them about Jesus. That is your task. Romans 12, 17, and 18. This is your political marching orders from Paul. Never pay back evil with more evil. Do things in such a way that everyone can see that you're honorable. Do all that you can to live at peace with everyone. Go get them, family. Lord Jesus, help us to be on message like you were. Help us to see our task as clearly as David. The Holy Spirit that lives within us makes us the temple of the Holy Spirit. And where we go, we bring God. And so may we be a people as we vote, as the vote comes in, as the election is over, as our nation continues to rail against prejudice and everything else, may we be a people who do not look at skin color or races or historical truth. May we be a people who proclaim biblical truth and nothing else. In the name of Jesus Christ, change us. Amen. One thing. What we do here is after, after church, or we have a few before, we go into Bible study. And you are encouraged to disagree with what I preach. You just got to defend it with Scripture. So when you find the verse that says the fruit of the Spirit is hate, you share it with me and I'll preach hate next week. The fruit of the Spirit is what we do. Go to Bible study, discuss this, but you got to use the Word of God. Love you. Uh, Wednesday night, no church, but we have hot dogs or whatever. See ya.